So tonight what we're going to do is we're going to finish off the remaining sections of chapter 49 and 50. And as I mentioned in the last class, the colour scheme that we see here on the screen is a good way, I think, to split the prophecy uh, so that we can understand it. Uh, and what we're going to do is we're going to jump straight now to that orange section, which is um, covered from verse 14 through to chapter 50 and verse 3. And you'll remember that we, we said that we're ignoring the chapter split in the flow of that prophecy. So in verse 14, we have a new speaker introduced. First, we had the servant. Then we had Yahweh. Then we had praise. And now we have Zion introduced as a speaker, introduced as the wife of Yahweh, speaking as she reacts to these previous sections that we've already looked at. And to understand the section, uh, what really helped me was to look at it in a slightly more detailed breakdown. So what you see on the screen here is it's my view of how uh, we have the flow from verse 14 through to chapter 50 and verse 3. And so we're going to cover this in detail, uh, the slide will be up for a fair bit uh, during the night. So the sections we're looking at is we've got Zion feeling rejected and the reaction from Zion. And then in verses 15 to 16, we have three reasons that Yahweh gives as to why Zion has not been rejected. And then in verses 17 through to verse 20, we've got four assurances that Yahweh gives to Zion of a promise restoration. And then we see in verses 21 to 23, there's a response and almost an amazement from Zion at what we're covering in the previous verses. And then Yahweh responds to Zion's response. And then it's like we get this question posed in verse 24 about the captives. And we get Yahweh's response to that as well. And then in chapter 50 in verses 1 to 3, we get Yahweh's further response to some of the accusations that... Zion posed in chapter 49. So to me that really helped me in terms of understanding the flow of what we're going to consider tonight. And there's quite a lot in it as you can see. And you know, whenever a sentence begins with the word but, it normally means that you're not expecting there to be a positive thing that comes next. And that's exactly what we find when we look in chapter 49 and verse 14. We've got the but. You know, we've just had this, this second servant song. We've just had this response of Yahweh. We've got praise happening and, and then there comes the but. But Zion, Zion feels forsaken and rejected. And that's what they're saying to Yahweh. They're saying, you've forsaken us. You've forgotten us. So the question is, why would Zion react this way? Why, why would they think that Yahweh has forsaken them and forgotten them? Well, I, I think there's probably two reasons that they would think this way. You've got to remember that this prophecy is being given to them in their time of captivity in Babylon. And so for them, it would have felt like God had forsaken and forgotten them. You know, despite all of the promises that their captivity would end, at that time, it wouldn't feel like it was ever going to happen or that it would become a reality. And I think we can feel like this sometimes too. 
during our time of captivity, as we await our Lord's return, we can feel like maybe we've been forgotten and forsaken and have those sorts of negative thoughts. But what we know is that Israel's captivity, Judah's captivity, did end. We know that it ended for them in Egypt. We know that it ended for, for them in Babylon. Just like one day, our captivity is going to end. And so, really, we need to have the faith that while we live in these dark days, Yahweh is still working actively and will soon send his son to the earth as he always keeps his promises. So perhaps that's the first reason why Zion reacts this way. They're in captivity. Uh, perhaps the other reason is that they're jealous because Yahweh is offering salvation to all of mankind. You know, the Jews thought that salvation was exclusively theirs. And suddenly they see that there's an invitation that it's been extended to all of the Gentiles and, and the nations that surround about them. So I think you can understand why they would react this way. The, the Gentiles, they're saying? The, the Gentiles? Have you seen what they've done to us through our history? Egypt, Assyria, Babylon. And now you're going to invite them to be a part of our salvation? They couldn't see the bigger picture and hence why they react as if Yahweh has forgotten and their history and, and forsaken them for the Gentiles. And so Yahweh responds to the accusation of being forsaken and for, for, forgotten by providing three very strong reasons why the interests of his people are completely safe. The first reason comes in the form of a question, and it, it draws on perhaps one of the most tender ties of any natural relationship, the bond between a mother and an infant child. I think mums can certainly relate to this image because you've experienced the absolute dependency that a, an infant child has to be nourished. And we all know how quickly a, a mother can respond if they suddenly hear the, the cries of a hungry baby, they, they react and, and they make sure that they take care of that infant and, and they're compassionate upon the child. So here Yahweh is saying that his love and his remembrance for Zion is more enduring, more enduring than the strongest of any human affection. You see, he's saying, well, a mother would sooner forget their child than God will forget his afflicted and suffering people. It happens sometimes, a, a loving mother forgets to feed her child, she's distracted, time gets away, she misses the alarm, she falls asleep. And we know sadly that there are cases where a, a mother will not have the, the natural affection for a, a child and, and will abandon them. So Yahweh is saying, this doesn't happen in my case. It's not so with Yahweh. And this is the point that he's making, that he has a love for his children that surpasses even the strongest bond in nature. And while a mother might forget, Yahweh will never forget Zion. The second reason that God answers to the complaint of Zion is that he has graven Zion in the palm of his hands. The New King James Version renders that, See, I have inscribed you in the palm of my hands. And the, the basic 
Bible in English translation renders it, See, your name is marked on my hands. And the literal translation uses the term carved to give a sense that whatever is graven or written or inscribed or carved in Yahweh's hands is absolutely permanent. It's of deep interest to him. It's so deep that it even delineates its outlines in the palm of his hands and would always be there before him. The margin directs us to the Song of Solomon 8 verse 6 where the speaker says, Set me a seal upon thine heart as a seal upon thine arm. The seal was uh, perhaps a, a cylinder seal or a or a, a signet ring, a wedding ring would be a, a good example of, of one of these cases. And it's very similar to the requirements in Deuteronomy 6 verse 8, where they were instructed to bind the law upon their hand, that they would be as frontlets between their eyes. And all these things are all designed to aid our remembrance. So what Yahweh is telling Zion here is, look, you are graven on the palm of my hand. Not that God needed a reminder, but in a human sense, if you've got something carved into the palm of your hands, it's always going to be there as a constant reminder and something that you could never forget, just like Yahweh would never forget Zion. And, and when you think about that image, I think there's four points that we can take away from this figure that Yahweh is presenting. The first one is that it's a constant remembrance. It's impossible not to see what is written in the hands. There's a devoted help. That's number two. The hands are for the work. And Yahweh is suggesting that not only is Zion remembered, but they are helped. The third thing is that it's a permanent consideration. You know, writing can fade, but what is graven remains permanently. And the fourth thing is that it takes painful effort. To engrave something on your hand would cause pain. So Yahweh would make sacrifices for his people, including his only begotten son. And of course, we can't miss the connection here, can we, with that, the painful effort of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was nailed to the cross for the salvation of his people. He bore the physical evidence of this in his hands and in his feet and in his side. And in John 20 and verse 27, he says to Thomas, bring your finger here and see my hands. A permanent reminder of the love that the Lord Jesus Christ has for his people and the sacrifice that Yahweh made of his son. The third reason that Yahweh gives as to why he has not rejected Zion has to do with the last statement that he makes in verse 16. Your walls are continually before me. Of course, as I said, we remember that this prophecy is given to the children of Israel when they're in captivity. You know, at that time, the, the walls of Jerusalem are in ruins. So there's a reassurance here that the walls are going to be rebuilt. And that certainly will come out in the next few verses. Because Zion has such a glorious destiny... And because it would be the seat of the throne of David that the Lord Jesus Christ would rule over, her walls are never forgotten by him. You know, the, the walls of a city, uh, they also figuratively speak of the health 
or the strength or the prosperity or the security of the people. It's the same word that's used in Exodus 14 when the children of Israel crossed over the Red Sea and there were walls of water on either side as they passed through safely. When you look at Nehemiah, he prioritised the rebuilding of the walls to ensure that the workers would be safe from their enemies. So in mentioning the walls, Yahweh is saying that Zion is always in his thoughts. The current state of Jerusalem, the future destiny of the city, the people, their health, their security, their prosperity, their strength. These things are always before him and he's never going to forget them. So three reasons why Zion has not been rejected. And you know when we consider these three things, it gives us pause just to consider and reflect on some questions for ourselves. So first question, is our love for God and Christ greater than the love that we have for anything else, even for our natural relationships? What's inscribed in the palm of our hands? Are the names of Yahweh and Christ written upon our hands as we continually remember them each day? And thirdly, what city are we looking towards? Is it the world that we live in today? Or are we like Abraham who looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God? So then we move into the four assurances that Yahweh gives. So he's just given three reasons why Zion has not been rejected. And Yahweh now goes on to provide four assurances about Zion's future. And you know, they're not, these assurances are not just addressing the reasons why Zion feels rejected, but they're giving us this beautiful vision of the future as the nation progresses right up to the establishment of the kingdom of God and even beyond. The first assurance that Yahweh gives to Zion is in verse 17. And it really, I think, answers the question about why Zion is feeling rejected um, because of the fact that they're in captivity and their city has been destroyed. You'll notice the way it's worded in the King James Version. It's, Thy children shall make haste, thy destroyers, and they that made thee way shall go forth of thee. The Septuagint renders it as, Thou shalt be speedily built. And you know, some versions, such as the RSV, uses, for the word children here, uses the word builders. So, is it the children who will make haste? Or is it the builders who will make haste? Well, I think it's both. The sense is most likely that the descendants of those who are now in exile will hasten their return and rebuild the desolate capital and restore its ruins. In other words, they're both the children of Zion and they're the builders of Zion. So Yahweh is assuring Zion that her children will make haste and return and rebuild and the destroyers will make haste and retreat and run away. So, you know, for a, a 
nation that's in exile and feeling forsaken and forgotten, it would have given them a great deal of encouragement to know that Yahweh would return their children again to the land and that the city would be rebuilt. And we also know that Zion is going to be rebuilt after the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The second assurance that Yahweh gives to Zion takes them beyond just a simple return to the land and a rebuilding of the city. And it really answers the issue of why Zion feels rejected because Yahweh is inviting all nations to partake in the blessings that were once exclusively Zion's. In verse 18... Zion is told to stop and look at those who gather themselves and come to you. Stop and look. And Yahweh gives Zion the assurance that all these Gentile converts, those that were mentioned in verse 12 that we looked at in the last class that are flocking to her from all the four quarters of the globe, look at them. They'll they'll be nothing like the Gentile nations that you've dealt with in the past. These are Gentiles that have adopted the hope of Israel. They're all one body. They're all one mind. They're all her adopted children. They all worship the same God. They're all led by the same Messiah. And because Yahweh can swear by none greater, he swears by himself, as truly as I live, you, Zion, will clothe yourself with these adopted children. And they will be like jewels are to a bride. That's the assurance that Yahweh is giving Zion, that these Gentile converts are going to be an honor or an ornament unto you. You'll embrace them in love and you'll feel their beauty, just like a bride adorns herself with beauty on her wedding day. The sentiment we find here is that this large group of converts under the Messiah would be a real ornament to Zion. They would greatly increase her beauty and loveliness. The third assurance that Yahweh gives to Zion expands this vision even further. They've had the assurance that the children would return and rebuild. They've had the assurance that the Gentile converts will flock to her and be an honour and an ornament to her. Now Yahweh is assuring Zion that a country which is waste, desolate, a land of destruction, and according to Isaiah 5 verse 9 and 6 verse 11, without inhabitant, a country that has all these characteristics would once again be inhabited. Actually, it's going to be so full of people that there's not going to be enough room for the inhabitants. Yahweh is assuring Zion that her expanded family will be greater than the rebuilt city can accommodate. So that's a a huge increase. That's innumerable. And not only would there not be enough room for the inhabitants, but there's going to be no stranger and no enemy among them. Zion is going to dwell safely because those that have previously swallowed them up are going to be far away. And I think once again, Yahweh's assurance here, this third assurance, covers those two reasons why Zion is feeling rejected and forsaken. You're saying, I've forgotten you in captivity? Well, one day your family will be so large that even the city won't accommodate it. You're worried that the Gentiles 
have salvation, they'll be your children as well. Not a single enemy will dwell anywhere near the city. And the fourth assurance that Yahweh gives to Zion is in verse 20. Notice what's happening here. These these adopted children, these Gentile converts are going to be begging, begging for a place to stay. There's a desire there, isn't there? A desire to stay. It's not like the children come to the city and they see that the city is too full and they say, ah, well, might as well head home. They're looking and they're finding no place to stay. And these children are saying, wow, there's a lot of people here. I don't have anywhere to stay, but I don't want to leave either. Please give me a place to stay. And why do you think that's the case? It's because in, in Isaiah 2, verses three to, uh, 2 to 3, it says that all nations will flow unto the mountain of the Lord, and many people shall go and say, Come ye and let us go to the mountain of Yahweh. So when you've got children begging to stay, there's a, there's a permanence to that, isn't there? There's no people drifting off because they can't find a place. They're not leaving the household for other pursuits. They're not finding an empty place because someone else has left or passed away. This is a permanent situation. The place is too straight. It's, it's too narrow. It's too small to accommodate the people because the numbers are so innumerable and they're not shrinking. And as we mentioned earlier, these assurances not only directly address the reasons why Zion feels rejected, but they also provide us with this wonderful vision of the future glory of the nation, all the way up to the kingdom of God and beyond. You know, when you think about the progression, you've got the sons returning and rebuilding under the leadership of Nehemiah. And we know from the book of Nehemiah that they were protected from their enemies. The Lord Jesus Christ commenced the adoption of the Gentiles during his first ministry. In fact, when you have a look at what he's saying to his disciples just after he's spoken to the woman of Samaria, it's clear that what he's doing is he's alluding to Isaiah chapter 49, verse 18. You know, he, he says to his disciples in John 4 and verse 35, he says, Lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they're white and they're ready to harvest. He wasn't talking about the grains that were on the field. He's talking about this group of Samaritans that are coming towards him to learn about some of the things the woman had, had told him. The Apostle Paul and others continue the progress of adoption of the Gentiles, but they made it clear that it didn't mean the Jews were rejected or had been cut off. And in Romans 11, you've got that vision of that tree which is adorned with the branches of the Gentiles and the branches of the Jews. They're all on this single tree. It's a beautiful tree and they're all together. And here we are, we're sitting in 2023 in Australia as Gentiles who have adopted the hope of Israel. And we're awaiting the final fulfillment of Isaiah 49 when after the return of the Lord Jesus Christ... The adopted sons and daughters of Zion will take part in the building of the temple 
in Zion as we have in Ezekiel 40 to 48. The nations will flow up to the mountain of the Lord as we saw in Isaiah 2. There will be an innumerable company of saints making up the sons and daughters of Zion as we're told in Revelation 7 verse 9. And the kingdom of God will be permanent in Daniel 2 and verse 44. So there's the assurances of Yahweh fulfilled for eternity. And in verse 21, we have the reaction of Zion to these four assurances and to the prophecy of Yahweh. Zion is staggered, absolutely amazed at the multitude that they see. And Yahweh can read her thoughts and knows what's in her heart. Zion's reaction, it's one of a mother who has been deprived of her children and suddenly she's surrounded with more than she's ever lost and from her heart starts to flow all these questions. Who has begotten me these things? I've lost my children and I've been desolate and captive and constantly moving on. Who raised them up and where have they been? How's this even possible? I was left alone. And in verses 22 to 23... Yahweh answers all of these questions and in doing so, he expands even further on the four assurances that is given them earlier. Yahweh confirms how it's possible that Zion would have this multitude of children. He tells Zion that he will lift up his hand to the Gentiles and set up his standard to the people. You know, to to lift up your hand is a, a sign of beckoning or an invitation. And we often do this with our children. We say, hey, boys, come here. And we're beckoning them to come with our hand. The idea here is that Yahweh will lift up his hand and beckon the Gentiles to join in the hope of Israel. And he also sets up a standard or a, a banner or an ensign for the people or the Gentile nations. And in a natural sense, this method was often used in times of war, to rally the forces of a nation around it. And here we have Yahweh setting up an ensign in the sight of all the nations as he beckons them with his hand so that they rally to the call under the ensign that is established. And you know, if you look at Isaiah chapter 11, verses 10 to 12, it's a a reference that I think is worth noting here against verse 22. It's essentially the same concept, but I think it clears this up for us a little bit because you've got the mention of an ensign. It's the root of Jesse or the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 10. And if you have a look further in verse 11, you've also got mention of the hand of Yahweh recovering the remnant of the people from all nations. And so this same idea is used here in Isaiah 49 verse 22. Yahweh has begotten and brought up these people by his own hand, using the Lord Jesus Christ as the ensign among the nations of the earth. Those who have responded are the adopted children of Zion, who will become the saints in the kingdom age. And these children will be amongst these generations. They've been been amongst these nations for generations. That's where they've been. That's the answer to where of these children. They've been amongst the nations. And they're waiting a time when they'll be gathered to Zion as immortal saints. Yahweh paints the picture of the people being carried to Zion from these same nations. 
It's a similar scene which is presented in Zechariah 8, verses 21 to 23. You've got the nation seeking Yahweh, and they're taking hold of the skirt of the people of Zion, of, of the people of Yahweh, and they're going with them up to Zion. You know, so they're not literally carrying them on their shoulders, but they're certainly with them on the journey. Yahweh also says in verse 23 that kings and queens of these nations will become nourishers and they'll absolutely fulfill what is written in verse 7 in relation to that vision that we already saw of the kings and the princes worshipping Yahweh and worshipping the Lord Jesus Christ. Because they'll know that Yahweh is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And all those that bow down and worship, whether it's the saints or it's the kings or it's the princes or it's the nation of Israel, they'll not be ashamed to have this attitude of faithfully worshipping and waiting on Yahweh. Just like the words of Psalm 25 and verse 3. Let none that wait on thee be ashamed. That's Yahweh's answer to how he has begotten the family for Zion. It's his answer to where they've been and how they're going to return to Zion in the future. You know, there's a, a question which is introduced in verse 24. The question is, shall the prey be taken from the mighty or the lawful captive delivered? The ESV renders this verse as, Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captive of a tyrant be rescued? And when you have a look at the commentary surrounding this verse, there's actually no agreement really on who is posing this question. Perhaps it's Zion asking the question, How can the adopted children be delivered from these tyrant nations? Perhaps it's Yahweh asking a rhetorical question, which implies the answer is no, but he then goes on and answers how he's going to achieve what no one else can achieve. Perhaps it's Isaiah interjecting a question. Perhaps it's the nations around that are challenging the ability of Yahweh to call out children from the Gentiles and have them be carried to Zion. Perhaps it's the adopted Gentiles feeling the immense pressure living amongst the nations and they're questioning what power could save them from these tyrants. Either way, Yahweh answers this question in verses 25 and 26 and in doing so, he actually is going to address some of the other points that have been raised earlier. To Zion's point in verse 21 She's lost her children, but Yahweh says he will save her children. To Zion's point in verse 21, she's desolate and a captive, but Yahweh says, I'll contend with them that have contended with you. He's going to make sure that they're released from captivity. And to this question posed in verse 24, the captives of the tyrants can be rescued because Yahweh says that the answer is yes. The captives of the tyrants will be taken away and they'll be delivered. And Yahweh says he's going to destroy the tyrants, as he explains in those gruesome scenes that are presented in Isaiah 49 and verse 26, as that chapter draws to a close. And so really, there's an obvious 
connection with the history of Zion here as they were delivered from captivity and her children were saved out of Babylon. But, you know, this particular answer that Yahweh gives is much bigger than that. It's talking about a time when all flesh will know that Yahweh is their saviour and their redeemer. The mighty one of Jacob. It's talking about a time when both faithful Jew and faithful Gentile will be saved from the tyrants and redeemed. You know, think about all the, the suffering and the tribulation that the saints have gone through throughout history. Many perished at the hands of tyrants. Think about the captivity that we endure, the captivity of our mortality. Sin and death is a tyrant. And none other but Yahweh can deliver us through the salvation offered through his son. When the Lord Jesus Christ returns to the earth and Yahweh liberates the captive saints from sin and death and they become the immortal children of Zion, well, only then can we say that Yahweh has saved her children and all flesh will finally know, that Yahweh, know about Yahweh and his destruction of all the tyrants will be absolute and permanent. Both the earthly powers which have persecuted the faithful and the tyrant of sin and death. Chapter 50 continues this part of the prophecy with Yahweh providing an additional answer to some of the accusations that Zion leveled in chapter 49. Remember, she accused Yahweh in verse 14 of forsaking her and forgetting her. She also claimed to have been desolate and left alone in verse 21. And Yahweh wants to address those accusations. He wants to leave them in no doubt about his position and remind them of the awesome power that he has to save and deliver them. But you will notice that there is a slight change from the previous chapter. So in verse chapter 49, Zion, uh, Yahweh is addressing Zion and answers and gives assurances to Zion. Now in chapter 50, he is addressing the natural children of Zion. But really, the two are intrinsically linked. And in addressing the natural children of Zion, he's really answering Zion's accusations. And he's addressing the natural children of Zion in verse 1, and he asks them two questions. To the accusation that I've left you alone, where is the bill of your mother's divorce? To the accusation that I have forsaken and forgotten you, which of my creditors did I sell you to? You know, regarding the first question, it was well within Yahweh's rights to give the nation a bill of divorcement. In Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 1, there's a provision under the law where a man could issue a bill of divorcement to a wife for her uncleanness. Jeremiah 3 and verse 8 shows us that Yahweh had already given a bill of divorce to Israel and is saying, Judah, you're just as bad. Regarding the second question, it was also well within Yahweh's rights to sell the nation. We know from Exodus 21 and verse 7 that a child could be sold to pay a debt or as a judicial sentence. So two questions. And Yahweh provides an answer 
to both of these questions in the second part of verse 1. And he addresses them in reverse order. So here's the answer. Yahweh has not sold Zion. He says because of their iniquities, they've sold themselves. You know, in reality, Yahweh had actually given the nation into captivity. He hadn't sold them. He had just given them into captivity. So he didn't owe the captors anything, and he could take the nation back whenever he desired. And here's the other answer. Yahweh has not divorced Zion. He says because of their transgressions, they have divorced themselves. You know, Yahweh didn't cause the thing Zion is accusing Yahweh of in this prophecy. He provides them these answers to clearly state his position. And, you know, I think we can fall into the same trap as Zion and place the blame on Yahweh for our problems or our sufferings or our circumstances, our lot in life, our difficulties. And it's a reminder here that Yahweh doesn't do these things to us. But what he does in the next few verses is that he reminds us that he has the strength to redeem and the power to deliver. In verse 2, we see that Yahweh tried countless times to come to the people, but there was no man who heard his voice. Yahweh continued to call, but no one responded. And the Chaldee renders this as, Wherefore did I send my prophets, and you did not turn? They prophesied, but you did not attend. And in verses 2 and 3, Yahweh confirms in a most powerful way that his hand is not shortened and that he does have the power to deliver. And we've got examples in those verses drawn from their history to remind them about the power of God. We've got the situation when he dried up the sea, and we know from Exodus 14, verse 21, that the children crossed through the sea safely. He says, I make the rivers a wilderness. And we've got the example in Joshua 3, in verse 17, where as the children of Israel were walking along, and when the priests that bear the ark stood on the, the, the midst of Jordan, suddenly the waters parted, and he made it dry so that they could cross over. He says their fish stink because of the water and died for thirst. And we know in Exodus 7 and verse 18 that this was one of the things that occurred in Egypt with one of the plagues. He says, I clothe the heavens with blackness. And there's an example in their history as well when in Exodus 10 and verse 21 we have another plague, the plague of darkness, where it was so dark that it could be felt. And he says, I make sackcloth their covering. And you could take a number of examples from Scripture that this relates to. The example of Elijah. Uh, there's the example of the reaction of the children of Israel in cases of putting sackcloth on. In Deuteronomy 4 and verse 11, we've got that vision of the children of Israel when they come near to Mount Horeb and they can see the darkness and, the, and there's clouds and there's, there's thick darkness. So you get this, this idea of black covering over the, the sky as they're there at the mount. So throughout history, Yahweh did all these things and he had the power to deliver. So the nation had failed Yahweh. He hadn't failed them. It was them who had forgotten Yahweh. 
Them who had forsaken Yahweh. Them who had divorced themselves from Yahweh. Them who had sold themselves. But that's not the end of the story. Because we're now going to consider the third servant song and see how the suffering servant would succeed where the nation had failed. It's covered from verse 4 in Isaiah 50. And as a reminder, it's worth colouring in a box around each of the four servant songs that we considered in our last class. The third song has the title, The Responsiveness of the Servant, and it provides us with an insight into the physical abuse that the servant would suffer, but that a time, in that time, that he would continue to place his confidence in Yahweh as he journeyed along that path that he had been placed on. And you'll notice here the title Adonai Yahweh is used four times in this third servant song. So it's really emphasising the servant's view that Yahweh is the master and that he is the servant. And what we find, again, we look at some of the characteristics and qualities of the servant that this song begins with in verse 4. He's got a tongue of the learned. The song opens with the servant proclaiming that Adonai Yahweh has given me a tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to them that are weary. The idea of this verse is a tongue of instruction. It's someone who can speak eloquently. And you get the sense of that all throughout the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ where people heard his words and they marveled. And you know, just picking up on that last one there in, uh, referenced on the screen in Matthew 9 and verse 36, in that reference there, the Lord Jesus Christ is going throughout all of the villages and is preaching to the people. And we're told in verse 36 that when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. And the word fainted in Matthew 9 and verse 36 means weary. The, the people were weary. The contemporary English version renders this part of this verse here as, Yahweh gives me the right words to encourage the weary. And it was really his compassion that motivated him to do that. So the servant uses his learned tongue to speak a word in season to the weary. He also wakes up morning by morning. You know, the servant's alarm clock was Yahweh. The Lord Jesus Christ was active throughout all of his ministry. He didn't sit by the sidelines and let others do the work. He didn't shy away from the work that needed to be done. He wasn't sluggish when it came to his service to others. Mark 1 and verse 35 says, In the morning rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place and prayed. So when did he wake up? Very, very early in the morning. Woken up by Yahweh and his love for his father as he sought out a quiet place to pray. The next thing he says is, in verses 4 and 5, Adonai Yahweh wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned, and Adonai Yahweh has opened my ear. You know, there's two actions that are happening here. The first action is that Yahweh has awakened 
the ear of the servant. So he's prepared the servant to hear instruction. The second action is that Yahweh has opened the ear of the servant. He's spoken to the servant and has given him instructions. You know, the individual servant of Yahweh that we have presented here is a complete contrast to the nation. Just a page or two over in Isaiah 48 and verse 8, Yahweh says of the nation, Yea, thou heardest not. In the case of our Lord Jesus Christ, it started from a young age. And we're told in Luke 2 and verse 46, when he was 12 years old, he's there and he's listening and he's hearing and he's asking questions. And in Psalm 40 verse 6, he says, Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire, mine ear hast thou opened. And in verse 8, he says, The law is within my heart, because he had opened his ears and he had heard the word of God. And fourth, the servant goes on to say in verse 5, I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. You know, we saw a moment ago when the Lord Jesus Christ heard the word of Yahweh and he knew exactly what was required of him. And I think really he had two choices. The first thing he could have done is he could have ignored Yahweh's call and he could have walked away. That's what the nation did here in Isaiah 50 and verse 2. Yahweh spoke to them and they didn't answer. They refused to obey the words. They're the rebellious children. Or he could choose to obey the word of Yahweh, which is exactly what he did. And we know from Matthew 4 and verse 10 that he says to the tempter, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and only him shalt thou serve. He was obedient. And Hebrews 5 and verse 8, we're told that he learnt obedience through the things which he suffered. And so what we have here then is we have the other four qualities of the servant. So you'll remember from the first night, we looked at the first four qualities and we left an empty space for the next four qualities. So now we've just gone through and discovered the other four qualities of an ideal servant of Yahweh. So you'll remember from the first night that the four qualities that we looked at was that the servant of Yahweh has a divine calling. The servant of Yahweh has incisive speech and speaks the word of God. The servant of Yahweh seeks to be secluded from the world as they're hidden in the shadow of the Father. And fourthly, we saw that the servant is freed from rust. They're a polished shaft. They're seeking to remain clean. And now we have the other four qualities, making up the eight qualities of a, an ideal servant, which we've just looked at now. So we've got that they give a word in season and they use their lips to uplift and encourage especially those that are weary. Number six is we're energised by our faith. We need to have an energy toward the truth and the ecclesial activities, exceeding our focus on anything else. The seventh quality, we have to have an ear which hears. And Yahweh speaks to us through his word and also through the things that we hear when we attend classes and, and meetings. And the eighth quality of an ideal servant is they're obedient to Yahweh. 
The true servant of Yahweh is going to obey Yahweh, even if the way is difficult. And these eight qualities we can develop in our lives if we want to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this case, it was a necessary preparation for the difficult ministry and the abuse that the Lord would suffer. And the thing we should never forget is that the Lord Jesus Christ's service and his sacrifice were 100% through choice. And it really comes out in some of these verses here. I was not rebellious. I gave my back. I hid not my face. I set my face. The servant chose to do all of these things. And we've got the words of John 10, John 10 verses 17 to 18. Therefore doth my father love me, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. This commandment have I received from my father. And just like we have a choice when it comes to our lives, we, we can choose to be a servant of Yahweh, or we can choose to be a servant of the world, or the servant of flesh. And in choosing to do the things that the Lord Jesus Christ chose to do, we find in this song that he suffered terrible physical abuse at the hands of wicked men. And that's what we're told in verse 6. You know, there, there can be absolutely no doubt that this is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ because the things that are happening here, you can find them happening leading up to his crucifixion. Uh, Matthew chapter 26 verse 67, we're told they spit in his face, they smote him with the palms of their hands. Matthew 27 and verse 26, we're told that they scourged the Lord. Matthew 27 verse 30, we're told they spat in his face and they smote him on the head. And despite all of this physical abuse, the concluding verses of the third servant song show a supreme confidence from the servant that Yahweh would help him. Psalm 89 verse 22, the enemy shall not outwit him, the wicked shall not humble him. Rotherham renders the term in verse 7 as I shall not be deferred by insults. The Lord was mocked by many people during his ministry and at his crucifixion but that did not deter him. And regardless of these insults, he set his face like a flint and resolved in Luke 9 and verse 51 to go to Jerusalem. And in Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel chapter 3, we've got this idea that setting your face like a flint means you've hard resolved to do something. You don't turn away either side. You're hard resolved and you've got a singular focus on a mission and in verse 8, you've got this vision of Yahweh standing beside his son and he's ready to defend him. We're told that Yahweh justifies or, or vindicates his son. And it, it signifies here an acquittal because you've been proven to be righteous. And it says in Psalm 32 in verse 2, Blessed is the man unto whom Yahweh imputeth no iniquity. We also find Yahweh is a witness for his son. And as it says in John 8 and verse 18, I am one that bear witness of myself, and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. And so you've got Yahweh here as the advocate of the servant. 
He's helping the servant in verses 8 to 9. And, and because of this, the servant calls out. He calls out to anyone that would dare to contend with him. He calls out to the adversary that would dare to come near. He calls out to anyone who would condemn him. And as the Lord says in John 8 and verse 46, which of you convicteth me of sin? Because the servant had total confidence in Yahweh. And that's why in verse 9, he imagined that all these accusers are growing old. They're like this garment that a moth eats and they just disappear long before they could ever overcome the might of Yahweh and the witness and the help that he provided. And that is a scene of total confidence in Yahweh. Confidence that Yahweh would help. You know, and I think, again, it's worth reflecting on our own lives. How is our confidence in Yahweh? Do we have confidence that when we ask Yahweh for forgiveness that he grants it to us? Do we have confidence that it is Yahweh says, when Yahweh says it's his good pleasure to give us the kingdom, that he actually means it? Do we have confidence when we're falsely accused that Yahweh will protect us and witness for us? And so we've got this beautiful servant song, as we've got summarized now on the screen. It's all about the responsiveness of the servant. And really, I think it's split into two distinct verses. You've got the first verse covered in verses 4 to 6. The servant here is declaring his words are the word of God. And he would hear and obey his father despite the physical harm that would come to him. And then you've got the second verse, which is covered in verses 7 to 9. The servant would continue on his path and has total faith and confidence that his father would help him face the challenges that would arise during his ministry. And so Isaiah chapter 50 closes in verses 10 and 11 with Yahweh's instruction to follow the servant. And we've, we've given this idea of light and darkness presented in these verses. You've got a person who's walking in darkness and there's no light. That's in verse 10. But they have this trust in Yahweh and they, they, they stay on Yahweh despite the fact that they're in darkness. Whereas you've got this other person in verse 11 who, who doesn't trust in Yahweh. You know, they're walking in darkness, but they don't trust in Yahweh. So they're kindling their own fire to produce light and to walk in the light of that fire and rely on themselves. And so what we are presented in these two verses is a choice. Just like the servant had to choose to hearken to the father and continue in the path. We, we're addressing here two choices that we have to make. One choice is to be amongst those that are addressed in verse 11, that rely on their own help, those who reject Christ as the light of the world and instead kindle their own fire and walk in the light of that fire. They'll get to enjoy their short-lived pleasures like the sparks that are, appear in a fire and then they quickly disappear in the blink of an eye. For those that choose this life, the ultimate reward is to lie down in your sorrow. The other choice, the choice that we pray earnestly that each and every one of us will abide by, is to be amongst the friends of God that are addressed in verse 10. 
those who fear Yahweh, those who obey the voice of his servant, those who suffer trials and tribulations like the servant did in verse 6, but they don't kindle their own fire or provide their own light or rely on themselves. It's those that trust in Yahweh and rely on the light that he provides, those that lean upon Yahweh, those who walk with his son, as it says in John 8 and verse 12. For this group, well, they'll be amongst those saints who are part of the family of God, those that are gathered into Zion, into a city which is overflowing with people. It's crowded with immortal saints that are worshipping Yahweh, with the Lord Jesus Christ as their king, because he has endured the abuse of, at the hands of wicked men, and he trusted in Yahweh and he stayed the course towards his crucifixion. He had victory over sin and death. And this multitude of saints, the ornaments of Zion, the multitude of saints, that's us, are those who Zion sees and wonders in this great amazement when she asks Yahweh, who hath begotten these? 